From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. We are living in an AI world and it can be both exciting and scary. How much artificial intelligence should we expect to be in our lives? Should we be afraid that AI will replace us in the workplace? We'll talk with two experts from UPenn to help us sort it out. This opens up a whole new world of great possibilities, and it opens up a whole new great world of risks. Charity Howard introduces us to a Philadelphia Parks employee who's moving on to another season of growth after curating the urban greenscape for 42 years. We did a lot of plant service. We did thrill shows. We put out greenery, dressed many stages. That's all coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. We are living in an AI world. Ready or not, it's already here and it's advancing. We are using it or at least interacting with it in some form or fashion in our everyday lives. I don't think many of us truly understand the reach of AI or whether the impacts will be for good or to our detriment or both. You can probably figure out that I myself have very little knowledge about the AI world. So we have experts with us today to help us all understand. Joining me today are Carrie Colonisi, Edward B. Schills, Professor of Law and Professor of Political Science and also the Director of the Penn Program on Regulation. He's also the host of the podcast Race and Regulation and he has a new paper that's called Regulating Machine Learning. Also with us is Michael Kearns. He's professor and national center chair of the Department for Computer and Information Science at the University of Pennsylvania. Michael is also founding director of the Warren Center for Network and Data Sciences. Welcome, both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Good to be here. So I'm going to go right to the Jetsons, okay? <laughs> I think that was our first kind of flash into what the future could be like robots, you know, doing things like putting a little something in a machine and then, you know, you have a whole meal, all kinds of, you know, floating cars and things of that nature. So, you know, when we watched all of that on the Jetsons, we were really thinking about what the future would look like. And we have seen some things. So I'll ask you both, how long has the technology involved in creating AI been in the works? Well, I think most researchers in the field would mark the beginning of AI probably sometime as early as the 1950s or so. Um, so it's a very old research topic within computer science and related areas. And I've been working in it myself since the late 1980s in graduate school, so I'm a relatively wizened veteran of the field. But I think maybe the most important thing for your listeners to know is that Basically, there have been dramatic breakthroughs in just the last 10 years and even more dramatic ones in just the last year and even last six months. So the field has really undergone a revolution. Um, and in particular, when I, you know, when I was a graduate student, the particular branch of AI that I studied, which is called machine learning, was you know, an obscure subtopic of the then discredited larger field of AI. And now AI is a standalone industry, right? There are very large companies that have very important AI divisions, including all the big tech companies, as well as very influential startups like OpenAI. Right. So it's really things have greatly accelerated in just the last few years. And a lot of that's in the last 10 years really been driven by advances in the 
processing capabilities. I mean, there's been, and I don't want to discount all of the advances in the data sciences and the analytics, but we wouldn't be here right now if it weren't for the raw computing power that's now mm. available you know, with each of us in our pocket having computing power yeah. on our smartphone that vastly exceeds what was available to uh, researchers even 30 years ago. Right. You know, the term AI is broad, and we've said it about, you know, 20 times or so just in the beginning of the show. So maybe we can talk about exactly what AI is. What is artificial intelligence? From the research perspective, in other words, how scientists who work in the field think about it, and not everybody would agree with me, but I think most would, the sort of primary driver of modern AI is machine learning. And machine learning, simply put, is building predictive models from massive amounts of data. So, for example, if we take ChatGPT as mm -hmm. an example, the problem that ChatGPT is solving is actually a very, very simply stated one, which is given sort of a fragment of a sentence or a paragraph, predict what the most likely next word is, okay? And the way you build such a predictive model is you have massive amounts of text available on the web, for example. Right. And so you have these examples of a prefix of a sentence, and then you know what the next sentence is. So you kind of have what we would call labeled data. You know, I, I have a sentence fragment like, once upon a time, there was a great, and then I can look at the data and see, you know, for occurrences of that particular fragment. And, you know, there are only so many different reasonable completions of that prefix of a sentence. Once upon a time, there was a great wizard. Once upon a time, there was a great dragon. Once mm -hmm. upon a time, there was a great queen, whatever. And basically, ChatGPT is using that kind of data to solve that predictive problem. And this is basically the domain of machine learning, where you're just taking examples of some phenomenon, like fragments of a sentence and then what the next word was, and building a model to make that prediction. Right. I mean, we even see that on our cell phones. I mean, just in writing a simple text. Sure, right. That autofill sure. uh, capabilities and the Siri and Alexa are all reliant on artificial intelligence. You ask a great question about what is it? How do we define it? And that turns out to be um, something that not everybody agrees upon. And I think it will be one of a number of challenges that society faces when they want to legislate or regulate. How do we define what it is? I have an automated uh, thermostat at my home that I don't have to actually adjust. It adjusts for me. Right. Is that a type of artificial intelligence? Uh, I tend to distinguish between automation and artificial intelligence. And by artificial intelligence, I do mean what uh, Michael's talked about in terms of machine learning algorithms. These algorithms are statistical computational representations that, unlike traditional statistics, can be self-learning. That's why it's often called machine learning. Mm -hmm. uh, they're identifying patterns and drawing out patterns in large sets of data, essentially on their own. And, and that means mainly that humans are not specifying the exact variables to look at and the exact mathematical relationships between them. There's a larger framework of structure behind a machine learning algorithm, but what it's doing is it's giving that algorithm a set of instructions to go and search for patterns in data and then make a prediction that achieves a certain outcome or objective. Yeah. Uh, these tend to be also algorithms that are designed for 
forecasting or predicting rather than necessarily drawing causal relationships or causal conclusions that you know x is causing y that's often been historically in more conventional forms of statistical analysis but we're not even sure exactly always why the outcome that the model generates has come about and that gives rise to some of the concerns about these algorithms sometimes they're called black box algorithms because of this automaticity self-learning nature and the lack of explainability in causal terms okay yeah, I've always said that if we have access to it now, it must have been in the works many, many years ago. And I'm, I always thought that the military always had this first. Is that how it works? I mean, the military historically has, um, you know, put quite a bit of funding and development effort into AI and machine learning. Mm-hmm. But I think the products and services that your listeners would be most familiar with really are the product of industry investment in the last 10 years, in particular in the tech industry specifically. And Carrie is right that a lot of the advances are not necessarily scientific. So a lot of the scientific ideas behind a lot of modern AI have been around since the 1980s. It's just that you couldn't get them to work at a large enough scale and process enough data. And interestingly, I think one of the main developments in processing power that helped aid the current AI revolution was the development of gaming chips. So in the early part of this century, Mm -hmm. the kind of compute demands for gaming platforms grew. And so the industry responded by building very specialized chipsets that sped up those calculations. And those chipsets turned out to be very, very useful for a lot of the computations that are necessary in machine learning. It may be that we just know a lot less about the military's use of AI Mm. because it's classified, but the government has tended to, in most areas, lag behind the private sector in the development of AI, at least most of the areas that we know about that are not classified. Although there have been some uh, areas, for example, uh, in handwriting recognition software, the U.S. Postal Service has been an innovator really in uh, machine learning algorithms to handle that particular function. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. The Biden administration this past spring announced several artificial intelligence related actions, including policy guidance on the use of AI systems by the federal government. So what does that say about where we are headed with AI and and regulation? Well, we actually see movement on a number of fronts. Um, First of all, Congress is not unaware of AI. Uh, The last Congress introduced, I think, about 300 pieces of legislation related to AI. Uh, There's dozens of bills pending or have been introduced in Congress to date in the current Congress. And there's a new initiative by the Senate Majority Leader to try to build some bipartisan support for AI legislation and and regulation. As you say, the Biden administration itself has given a priority to this. Uh, It's on the agenda. It's on everybody's minds, in part because of the rapid developments of open AI and the chat GPT and large language models. I mean, just to give you an idea of how fast this is moving, I teach in a law school here at the University of Pennsylvania, 
And we train our law students for three years to prepare to become lawyers. Then they spend the whole summer after they graduate studying for a bar exam. Mm. But to give you a sense of comparison for what these tools can do, in November of 2022, ChatGPT released version 3.5 that they tested on the uniform bar exam, which is both a multiple choice and an essay form exam. At that time, in November 2022, uh, ChatGPT did not pass the exam. It scored at the 10% level. However, by March of this year, 2023, OpenAI released ChatGPT version 4.0. So we're talking just three or four months later, and it passes the uniform bar exam at the 90th percentile level. Wow. So, I mean, I I love my students to be able to go from... uh, (laughs) From the beginning law school to passing the bar exam in In four months. That's what this tool has done. So this just gives you an idea of how fast this is moving. But there are a lot of benefits that can come from this technology. But there are negative uh, ramifications of it, too. And what we always want with technology, any kind of technology, is to be able to exploit the advantages and be able to, to reap the benefits that come from innovation, but also to minimize the harms that are related to it. And there are potential harms from this technology. Yeah, regulating something like this that is so ever-changing has got to be challenging. It's almost like you don't know what you're regulating next. You know, what's coming and is everything covered? And probably this has to continue to, you know, be as ever-changing as the technology itself. Right, right. I mean, you know, and even to call it a technology or to speak of artificial intelligence as something in the singular grammatical sense is misleading because it is not a particular one thing. We're talking machine learning algorithms in social media, which have its associated problems to machine learning algorithms that are used in assisted automobile technology, to machine learning algorithms that are used in medical devices, to machine learning algorithms that are used in marketing strategies, Uh, you name it, they're proliferating. And that proliferation and variation, or what I've called the heterogeneity of machine learning algorithms and the uses to which it's put, make it a very, very vexing problem from the standpoint of public policy. And I think that something you said is the key there to making progress, which I think regulation and policy has to be broken down by use cases. You can't talk about, you know, legislation for AI in general because the actual application matters greatly. So, you know, one's concerns over, let's say, I don't know, something like privacy or um, demographic bias might be very different in the setting where you're making, you know, medical decisions Mm -hmm. versus whether you're just returning entertaining content to a user. And you can't imagine having the same set of regulations in those two settings. And so, you know, as a scientist working in the field, I'll be honest, I look at a lot of proposed regulation and a lot of it is sort of nonsensical and inactionable from the perspective of someone like me. So what I mean by that is that even the most ambitious regulation proposals that I've seen, let's say people often hold up the GDPR in the EU, to someone like me, I look at that document, it's a well-meaning document, but when I look at it and say like, well, okay, if this passes, what should I do differently tomorrow? Very few pieces of legislation have the teeth to say what I should do differently tomorrow because they use words like privacy, fairness, toxicity, bias, 
without defining what they mean or how you would measure them or how much you would want of them or how much you would want to disallow. And so one thing I've often said is that, you know, AI is algorithms, right? You know, these are algorithms developed from training on data. But at the end of the day, they're still algorithms. You give them some input, they're going to give you some output no matter what. Mm -hmm. And until you actually say what the constraints you want on that output are, you're kind of nowhere, right? And so I think um, one of the biggest problems is that AI regulation is going to need to look more technical and algorithmic than the laws and regulations that we've been used to in sort of the previous era. And one of the ways I think, though, we can see, at least in the short-term regulation heading, is uh, through essentially leveraging the scientists and the analysts within these companies to interrogate the algorithms, to look for ways that they might be leading to unintended consequences or undesirable consequences. And the the big tech companies are doing a lot of this work already themselves. They don't want to release a product and have it turn out to be problematic, uh, get a lot of negative publicity from it and so forth. Uh, and so they're trying to test and prod and probe and figure out what the potential dangers or risks are from these algorithms. Carrie and Michael, I want to uh, ask a question uh, that may be on the minds of some people. I know my husband and I like to joke about this because he's a tech geek. And, you know, we joke about the robots are going to take over one day. They're they're thinking for themselves and, you know, we're going to be working for them. You know, I know it's jokes and we watch a lot of movies and we've seen all the crazy movies that show us what could be or what we think could be. But that's obviously, you know, we were talking about ChatGBT. I'm thinking of ChatGBT and BARD and all of these, you know, predictive writing type of uh, programs. It, are they learning? Are they being taught? They are both learning and being taught. And oh they're being, they're, you know, being taught by the users, right? So basically every time you use ChatGPT, you're giving it more data. Um, if right. you give ChatGPT feedback and tell it, like, well, that's not what I was looking for, it I think you should you assume that for. that data is going to be fed back into future versions of ChatGPT. Mm. And I do think there will be disruption to work, right? I think the nature of work will change in many industries. The fact that ChatGPT can pass the bar exam now, yeah, amazing. Um, <laughs> you know, suggests that perhaps ChatGPT is capable of doing certain kinds of work in a legal firm. Um, wow. You know, I don't think this means that, you know, human lawyers are going to go away, but it, it could change what that industry looks like. Um, the other thing I would comment on, you know, is I think another big step that is probably inevitably coming. Um, right now, ChatGPT lives in a sandbox. It lives in a closed environment. You go to a website, you, you know, have an interaction with it. But ChatGPT is not connected to the external world. So I can't say to ChatGPT, oh, you know, could you book flights for me for this trip and lodging for me under with these constraints and have it actually go out and take action in the world to do so? This is coming. There is no technological barrier whatsoever to giving ChatGPT what we would call API access to other services, to letting it, you know, in fact, um, many people are openly working on at least connecting ChatGPT to factual sources of information like news outlets and Wikipedia so that it can do some fact-checking of its own responses. 
And this opens up a whole new world of great possibilities, and it opens up a whole new great world of risks. Yeah. Because once you let the thing out of its sandbox, Mm -hmm. um, it can do a lot more things for you, and it can do a lot more things that you don't want it to do as well. How scary is it, or how concerned should we be about artificial intelligence being more intelligent than we are? Well, I think there's two aspects to that. One, which may be more immediate and real uh, right now, the other being more, you know, longer term perhaps. But the more immediate one is uh, that these algorithms can produce misinformation. Uh, They can uh, uh, lead people astray. And I think the the more immediate uh, worry here is that people will take the outputs of these large language models, in particular like ChatGPT, at face value. You know, as humans interfacing with it, we still have to have our own thinking <laughs> going on and we have to approach it critically. The larger and longer term challenge is a number of respected leaders in the field of AI are worried that this technology can become smarter than we are and that it can create what are called alignment or misalignment problems where uh, the AI could potentially, especially if it's actionable in the way that Michael is talking about, could operate uh, and generate its own objectives that are not aligned with ours. Scary. So, Michael, it's here. We're living with it. We're interacting with it. And especially the job that I have, I think there are people that are in this industry that may be concerned that AI is really going to be, may replace a lot of us. And I guess I'm asking, should we just go ahead and embrace it and learn how to use it better in our lives and in our workplaces uh, instead of just fearing that it will just re- simply replace us? Maybe we should just embrace it and get to learn it and, and understand it better. Yeah, I think so. And I often find that civilians, as I might call them, yes. um, who haven't interacted with something like ChatGPT, you know, once they go do it, they're both impressed. They find it fun. They find it sometimes useful. But they also see its limitations. I think in general, they're less afraid of it after actually interacting with it a little bit. Can I just add that, uh, you know, I think in terms of replacing us, there will be job dislocations. I think that, I mean, but, but uh, you know, that's the nature of technology. Yeah. It's always been that I mean, way. this I mean, happened what, with computers, and right, it also happened right. with the Internet as well. What, yeah. Whatever happened to the travel agent industry? I know there's still oh some travel agents out there, right? That's but true. But they used to be everywhere, and now we can all just go on exactly. the website and, and book our we, own airline tickets. Do we tickets. miss that? <laughs> I, no. I, you know, so I think what happens is that we're going to see shifting. And I think the most hopeful view here is that artificial intelligence tools can eliminate a lot of the drudgery work that humans are doing and allow us to refocus on what humans and humans alone are good at, which is connecting with one another, with providing empathy toward one another, and be creative and to engage and understand each other and help solve disputes. That's not to say that technology can't help even in that. I mean, the eBay has an automated dispute resolution tool that Do customers they? apparently are fairly uh, satisfied with, even though there's no human interaction. As but the point is that we're going to see some disruptions. I don't know that we can do anything to forestall that, but what we do need to put in place are the kinds of social policies that can make sure that our workforce is educated and able to be adaptable to new tasks 
and able to use these new technologies. Uh, you know, there's now a whole field of occupation called prompt engineers, and they're getting paid, I guess, a lot. There's going to be a period of disruption, though, but we need then social policies that are supportive of people, that help them through transitions. If there is jobless dislocations, we should provide for um, what's needed to help people through those transitions. Well, thanks for uh, pointing out the human yeah. element. I mean, uh, machines have not yet replaced us. We're not still yet. here. <laughs> no, and we will be here. Carrie Colonising, Michael Kearns, thank you both so much for lending your human voices to this discussion about artificial intelligence. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. If it's happening in Philadelphia, Charity Howard is talking about it. And today, she's talking about the great outdoors. Here's the latest, Shara in the City. Some call her Philly's tree queen, others call her the tree lady. But Lori Maple Hayes has come by both terms of endearment, honestly. Now the director of urban forestry with Philadelphia Parks and Recreation, Hayes is hanging up her hard hat after 42 years, curating parks all across the city and serving six mayors over the span of four decades. But Hayes says her most prized accomplishment was completing breast cancer treatment. Now she's looking forward to seeing if the grass is greener on the other side of retirement. Welcome, Lori Maple Hayes. So you're retiring after 40 years plus. How's that hitting home? It's exciting to see people wishing me well, people that I had forgotten about. It's another chapter in my season of growing. So everyone loves you. You're a staple in the community, but not only that, you're a beloved part of the community. How is it to say goodbye? And is it goodbye? It's not going to be goodbye if people say, get on my dance card and call me up, or I just make visits, or we pal up. Take me here. Let's go see the garden. Have you last been to this campus? Or I just want to go see and do. I'm a local girl, but as my health progresses, I want to branch out. I want to go. Get on planes. I do. So this is the next stage. So you spend a lot of time curating and really making Philadelphia beautiful. What was that like? Well, I worked for six mayors in the city. We always did the inauguration stage. Uh, for the mayor, I started Bill Green, who was here, and worked through Wilson Good, got an award with him, Employee of the Month in 85. So I've seen him come and I've seen him go. And because the job is seasonally oriented, I worked on snowstorms, hurricanes, good stuff, block parties. Oh my goodness, oh, the parkway used to be Super Sunday and Unity Day. And, oh, I look at the 4th of July, I used to be a VIP. Uh, oh my goodness, and the Thanksgiving Day Parade. So really an integral part of the city. But what did your job really entail? What was your favorite part? <laughs> it's funny now, I cut grass on the Ben Franklin Parkway. It's now contracted out 
but from the art museum that's where we kept our equipment in the tunnel area it's now a visitor's site and down to we call the sister cities the catholic church the bacillus and i loved it some people kind of looked at me like that's what you want to do but I went to Jersey every summer and I cut grass. I'm a city girl. Look at where we are. I'm in a row house. There's no lawn here. So I learned how to maneuver the tractors and I was good. 42 years good. Yeah, a long time ago. I, I said I was going to be off by the time I was 30. And I, I until 28, I got off the, the lawnmower at 28. So that was your favorite thing to do? Pretty much, um, but just representing the park. We did a lot of plant service. We did thrill shows. We put out greenery, uh, uh, dress mini stages. Oh, we had Bill Clinton, the president at Memorial Hall. I had to get clearances. Oh, it, it was just being a representative of greenery. I've been green for so long, like it wasn't cool when I was cutting grass because I wore work boots, you know, it had to be covered up all the time, but it was fulfilling inside because I was trained to do this. My background's horticulture, so high school, going to Penn State, graduating from Temple, and just working. Like for me, it was my grandma. I can't lose my city job. My grandma will find out. And that's what kept me straight and holding on to be respectful in the community and loyal. I was loyal to Fairmount Park. They knew it. I wear that stuff even before we got branded. Oh, man. I always had on some gear. Hey, you gotta have some gear. But now you're on to the next step, the next thing. You said you wanted to fly, you wanted to explore. That's kind of at the heart of who you are, it seems like. Taking the chance, taking the risk, doing that next thing. Well, I have a significant other in Tallahassee, Florida. And I want to go there when I want to go. I'll lock my house up and get on the plane. My family will be all right and I'll be back. It's your time now. Absolutely. I'm going to own it. I'm going to own it. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter, at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. Be well.